Welcome to the SLP Talk Show. Real talk with Carrie about stuff that really matters. Hey, it's Carrie, your fast-talking, speech-therapy-loving host. While you are driving, cleaning, exercising, or whatever it is you do while listening to podcasts, I'm going to be chatting about pediatric speech therapy stuff. But I don't want our time together to feel like work or be boring. You already work enough, and you already have enough boring stuff to do in your life. So let's get going and have some fun. Hi, this is Carrie, and I'd like to welcome you to the eighth episode of SLP Talk Show. Jim is here with me in the studio. If you're a first-time listener, Jim is my husband, business partner, and honorary speech-language pathologist. Howdy, howdy. <laughs> All right, so before we get started, Jim, I have a question for you. And I did not prep Jim for this episode at all. So no. he has oh no. no idea what's coming. So here's your question. Are you ready? You're a movie buff. Okay. Okay, so have you seen the movie Risky Business? Yes. Have we seen it together? <laughs> I don't recall. I, uh, I, I'm just going to let listeners, listeners know that I uh, don't really have a good gauge of what movies I've seen and which ones I haven't. Yeah, you don't. You, it's, <laughs> it's great because you'll be like, this is a good movie. I'm like, yeah, you've seen it before. And you're like, no, I haven't. And I'm like, yes, you have. <laughs> we watched it together. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't process i i tend to get lost in movies i start thinking about 10 other things and so i'm not real good at knowing if i've seen movies or not i'm assuming i've seen risky business but honestly i we should watch it may, then you can rediscover it all over I again i can rediscover it all over again <laughs> yeah so i think that's what we're gonna do so i am gonna ask you some risky business movie trivia questions oh no are you ready okay so what year was risky business released I'm going to say uh, 1984. 1984. You are close. It is 1983. Oh. But I'm going to give... I mean, that was really good. Yeah. I'm I not mean, sure. you should give me within a couple years. Yeah, I, absolutely. Okay, so Tom Cruise is obviously the, the lead actor, if you will. Right. Who starred with Tom Cruise? Rebecca DeMornay. Oh, you got it. I'm so ah. impressed. So because when I hear words, it makes me think of other words, this was going to be the clue I was going to give you. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. If you couldn't think of it, I was going to say her name sounds like, <laughs> I crack myself up sometimes, Chewbacca Chardonnay. <laughs> Chewbacca Chardonnay. And I was hoping that would give it to you. <laughs> that might be my next fantasy football team name. Chewbacca Chardonnay. I obviously find that funnier than probably anybody else on the planet. But uh, <laughs> okay, so what song did Tom Cruise dance to in his underwear? Um, just take the old records off the shelf. I think it's by. Um, but what's uh, the name of the the song? Oh, um, listen, listen to. <laughs> um, something rock and roll. Yeah, old time. Rock Old time roll. rock and roll, Old and it's by uh, Bob Seger. Oh, okay, very good. Didn't know that. Yeah. So, what does Rebecca Dor De Mornay Dorme? or <laughs> Chewbacca Chardonnay? <laughs> <laughs> what does she do for a living? Um, she is a lady of the evening. <laughs> a lady of the evening, she yes. is. Yes, she is very much. And what happens to the Porsche in the movie? Um, I believe it gets dumped into the lake. Do you remember which lake? Michigan. Probably. Lake Michigan. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know. Uh, again, I can't recall if I've seen this movie or not, but 
it it seems like it's a similar plot to that of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Is it kind of sort of? Uh, no. No. no, not not so much. I mean, much. there were no prostitutes in Ferris Bueller, but the car gets it falls in some body of water, doesn't it? No, it falls down a hill. Oh, okay, fine. I am terrible with movie trivia, so Jim, you win a million dollars, and you <laughs> you got all the questions right. I will, basically, I will send you my payment information. Okay, ven- so I'll Venmo you. you. Yeah, Venmo me. I'll Venmo please. you. Okay, all right, very good. So you may wonder why in the world are we talking about risky business and Chewbacca Chardonnay? I'm sorry, I can't stop saying <laughs> that. <now. laughs> Um, Well, the reason I wanted to bring this up is because I really want to talk to you guys a little bit about apraxia. Uh, I work with very young children, minimally verbal children with suspected childhood apraxia of speech. And so I want to talk to you guys a little bit about creating communication risk takers. I think in the last episode, I brought that topic up just briefly. So I thought I would expand on that and talk to you guys a little bit about Uh, that idea. So if we're going to create communication risk takers, that made my brain go to risky business somehow. Does that make sense at all, Jim? Yeah. Yeah. You've been married to me for 29 years. I can see the little wheels turning. The little wheels turning in my brain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, one of the things about young children with speech motor planning struggles is that they are often pretty aware of their challenges. Uh, They understand that talking is hard. They Mm -hmm. get pretty used to um, experiencing failure, right? So I tried to say that word yesterday, it didn't work. I tried to say that word this morning, it didn't work. I tried to say that word five times in speech therapy, it didn't work. And so there's this idea that uh, these kids anticipate failure based on past talking experiences. They anticipate that they're not going to be able to do it. And so I think what happens with a lot of our littles is they don't take risks when it comes to turning their voice on. Does that make sense? Yeah. Since they already anticipate that it's going to be hard or that I'm going to fail, they just sit quietly. And oftentimes speech therapy uh, is spent with the SLP trying to be overly animated and interesting and bubbly. And the child watches the SLP like they watch uh, a TV show, right? So they kind of are interested. They're smiling. They may be laughing, but they may not be turning their voice on. And so it's really important that we uh, help them become communication risk takers. So one of the the skills of a speech language pathologist is that ability to provide healthy moments of child-sized frustration. So we don't want to give them an activity that is too difficult, that is too challenging, because Mm -hmm. then we set them up for failure, right? Mm -hmm. But we also don't want to give them an activity that they can just breeze right through, that's so easy that, you know, they they don't really have to uh, challenge uh, their system. And so it's that uh, ability to provide... Uh, child-sized moments of healthy frustration. And uh, one of the, the, I don't know, terms that we can use is determining the optimum challenge point. So that optimum, does that sound like a fancy term? Yeah, that's that's fancy. That is fancy, isn't it? I'm pretty sure Dave and I use it, uh, that term, in our apraxia book, the SLP's Guide to Treating Childhood Apraxia of Speech. Uh, We talk about uh, determining that optimum challenge point so that the activity is neither too hard nor too easy so that we challenge that speech motor planning system uh, just, you know, the just right amount, if Mm. you will. 
Makes sense. Yeah. So uh, if you are um, curious about our book, it's uh, I, I co-authored it with Dave Hammer, who is an exceptional speech-language pathologist, but he retired in... 2019, uh, I believe. And so um, I was very honored uh, when he asked me to co-author this book with him. But chapter, let me find it here, Jim. Chapter three of our book is actually called Creating Communication Risk Takers. So we have an entire chapter on that. Mm -hmm. But I thought what I'd like to do today is just give uh, the listeners, whether you're a speech language pathologist, whether you're a parent, uh, some strategies to help the young child become a communication risk taker. So I think I jotted down just seven strategies. So we're, we're not going to, I don't want to be here all day. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I thought I would just kind of buzz through some of these. Uh, so the first strategy is, and this seems kind of counterintuitive, but we actually want to reduce the pressure to speak. So okay. if we have a child who is not turning their voice on, who, you know, when you uh, encourage them to say a word, uh, they kind of shut down and retreat, mm-hmm. uh, we actually want to do the opposite and we want to remove all pressure to speak. And so the way we do that is we introduce uh, augmentative and alternative communication, which is AAC. And uh It's so important that every child has a reliable and a robust way to communicate. And Mm -hmm. I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Jim, but I think back to when Aaron was very young and uh, really was not talking. Uh, So if you're a first-time listener, our son Aaron is now 17. He is autistic. Uh, He has apraxia. Mm -hmm. And uh, today at age 17, he's quite verbal, uh, most certainly. But at age two, three, four, five, he really did not have much spoken language at all. And unfortunately, back then, we didn't live in the digital age that we that right. we live in yeah. today. Things were much different. So we didn't have iPads and smartphones and getting a device was uh, an augmentative communication device was almost considered like a last resort. Yeah. Back then. But what do you think, Jim? Don't you think Aaron would have had a whole different childhood if he would have had a more reliable way to communicate? Um yes. I I I think that uh I think if he would have had that there've been a lot less meltdowns maybe. Um Yeah. Certainly. Uh maybe he would have been able to, um, I don't know, maybe interact with us more too. Absolutely. I I think, I think he isolated himself, you know, both out of autism and, and the apraxia because he just couldn't really communicate with us. And I think if he would have had something like that, I think it would have reduced his frustration immensely. Yeah, I agree. And you know, I think it would have not only reduced how many meltdowns he had, um, but I think it would have reduced the intensity because I feel like he could have told us what was going on and, you know, helped us to understand what he needed in the moment. So is there a stigma kind of um, associated with AAC that maybe we need to talk about that people... Well, there used to be. I mean, most certainly AAC used to be, again, considered like, oh, last resort. You know, you want to have a child in speech therapy for a long time before we would consider that. The whole thought process on AAC has changed and continues to change. Thank goodness. We now understand that uh, we always want to start with AAC Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, language trumps speech all day long. And so children need to develop their language system and language leads to literacy, right? So all language is so critical. So if we say, oh, no, but I want I want this child to talk. Well, 
talking is fine. That's one way to express yourself, but there are so many other ways to communicate. Right. Right. So that's where now we understand that AAC should be introduced first. It should never be considered a last resort. And we also are understanding that there aren't any prerequisites. Like you don't have to say, oh, well, he's not old enough Um, or he, um, you know, doesn't have uh, certain you know, skills like maybe can't uh, identify pictures upon request. We now understand that there don't there aren't any prerequisite skills because just like when a child is developing spoken language, we model language by talking to the child all day long, whether they talk or not, right? When they're babies, when they're itty bitty, we model that. So we do the same thing with AAC. We model use of the AAC device, Mm -hmm. even if the child isn't using it. And so, yeah, they're definitely, I think back if, man, if Aaron would have been born during the digital age, I think his whole childhood, you know, would have been a little different. Definitely would have been different. Yeah. So anyways, we're going to reduce the pressure to speak by introducing AAC. The other strategy that I want to make sure everybody is really comfortable with is we need to get everybody in the child's world to stop saying say. Uh, the more we instruct the child with a praxis of speech to say words, that means we're putting pressure on them, mm-hmm. the more likely it is they're going to um, retreat. They're going to uh, avoid interacting with people who instruct them to say words. Uh, so what happens uh, is we want the child to talk, so we tell them what to say. Say ball. Say cow, say please, say more, say hi, say thank you, say, 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 say all day long. And there are, um, you know, several issues with saying say. Um, One is if you say, say ball and the child says ball, we've made him prompt dependent, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, The second is if I say, say ball and the child uses echolalia, then he's going to say, or she's going to say, say ball, and that's not very functional. And if I tell a child with a praxis of speech to say ball, and the child cannot motor plan the movements to say the word ball, then I just set that child up for failure. And why would I ever, as the SLP, intentionally set a child up for failure? So instead of saying say, just say the word you wish the child would say, pause, and look at them expectantly. Give them an opportunity to speak but with absolutely no pressure to do so. So I actually call that strategy opportunity without pressure. So that's the very first thing we're going to do. We Yes, we want the child to talk, but we're going to reduce all pressure to speak. That's our first strategy. Our second strategy is to make sure that we as the adult, that we are safe and trustworthy communication partners. So what that means is we don't want to withhold items in an effort to make the child talk. We don't withhold things. You can model the word you wish the child would say, cookie, ball, whatever it is, and then we're going to automatically give it to them. We are not withholding things uh, and then um, telling them, oh, you can have it when you say ball. Tell me ball. Come on, buddy. You can do it. Say ball. Put your lips together. Ball, ball, ball. Come on. You can do it. Do you hear all that pressure? I mean, what happens is the child just shuts down uh, most of the time. So we're not going to do that. The third strategy is introduce voice amplifying toys. So this is where we're going to start in a non-pressured way, start helping the child find their voice. So we want to use things like paper towel tubes, you know, the rolls, the Mm -hmm. paper towels. Because when you're talking to that, it it just sort of uh, amplifies it a little bit. You can actually use, what are the things cheerleaders use? Megaphones, Megaphones, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
you can't see me, but I just like <laughs> gestured it for Jim uh, <laughs> when I have my word finding issues. Megaphones uh, are great. Uh, they make those echo microphones uh, that you can sometimes get like at the dollar store where, mm-hmm. where you talk in them yeah. and they reverberate a little bit. I also really like kazoos. I don't have a lot to say about whistles, but I really like kazoos because in order to make a kazoo work, you have to get air flowing through the vocal tract, but you also have to turn your motor on. So you get phonation. So it is helping the child act actually intentionally turn their voice on, which is a mm-hmm. prerequisite for speech. So kazoos are cool. one of my favorites. Yeah. The fourth strategy is to encourage early sound play. So that would be things like blowing raspberries and clicking your tongue. And my favorite is blawling. Jim, do you have any idea what blawling is? <laughs> I think I have an idea, but I can't do it. Myself. Okay. I'm going to blawl for you all. Okay. okay? This is just a, a tongue kind of... I, I don't even know, tongue flapping sound? I don't know, but this is blawling. Yep. Yep, you want to try it? Nope. Nope. <laughs> so I encourage families to blawl away when you're riding in the car. And just help the child get comfortable. Don't put pressure on them. Don't say, hey, buddy, blawl. And by the way, blawling, B-L-A-L-L-I-N-G is how I would spell that. It's not a real word. So please don't like write it in a, in a, in a, in a report. Um, but you blawling. You just put pressure on me to blawl. I did. And see, so you didn't do it. I you know. shut down I, altogether. I shut down completely. Yeah, you should see Jim. He's... He's really upset right now. Cowering. Yes, because I pressured him. That was my bad. So uh, I really like those uh, early, that early vocal play. You can do it in front of a mirror, like after the child brushes their teeth, right? So just think about fun times during the day when you can blawl, when you're playing with cars. That's where you can kind of make raspberry sounds. Right? And yeah. just sort of make those sound effects. You mm-hmm. can also, we talked about in the last episode, uh, actually using animal sounds, vehicle sounds, right. people sounds. Uh, yep. So those are like my silly sounds cards to provide the visual cue as well. Sure. All right. The fifth strategy is introduce repetitive songs, books, and finger plays. And the reason we want those uh, repetitive activities is because it provides uh, a structure. So we call those verbal routines, all right? We give it a technical name. Those verbal routines provide structure, predictability, and they eventually allow the child to fill in the blank. Hmm. So Jim, if I were to say, if we had been singing this song over and over and I said, row, row, row your boat. Yeah, you'd be able to fill that in. Or brown bear, brown bear, what do you See, 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 very nailed good. It yeah, again. nailed it, nailed it. Um, so, yes, so repetitive songs, books, and finger plays. The sixth strategy is to make sure, as the SLP, you're providing appropriate cues and feedback to support speech motor planning skills. And that's like a three hour course in and mm-hmm. of itself. And then the seventh strategy is to shape verbal approx- approximation systematically. So, verbal shaping is actually one of the multisensory cues that we can use as speech language pathologists. And I'll just give you one quick example. Uh, I used to see a little boy, uh, his name was Micah, and I asked his mom what uh, target words uh, she wanted us to start focusing on. He was minimally verbal, but he was starting to become a communication risk taker, and so I felt like we were ready to start some target word therapy. And she said, well, I don't need five words, I just need one word. I said, oh my gosh, well, what one word do you want Micah to say? And she said, Spider-Man. 
I was like, well, crap, because that's a really <laughs> complex word, right? It's a multisyllabic word with a cluster at the beginning. So in my head, I'm like, crap, I was hoping for like five single syllable words, you know, like right. ball and no, that's what I was hoping for. So what I did is I said, all right, so if Spider-Man is our word, I'm going to try to get his best approximation. So using phonological patterns, which only speech language pathologists know about, uh, I simplified the word to ba man. Okay, so I reduced how many syllables were in the word and took Spider-Man to Ba-Man. So I know it sounds a lot like Batman, but stick with me here, okay? Because Jim's like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound a lot like Spider-Man. So Ba-Man, but because he says it 500 times a day, because it's his favorite thing in the world, he loves Spider-Man, right? Mm -hmm. And all he was doing prior to that was just screeching. So mom was like, oh, do you want your Spider-Man book? You want your Spider-Man shoes? You want your Spider-Man fruit snacks? Like what, you know, she knew it was something to do with Spider-Man. So by giving him Ba-Man, he was able to uh, reduce the amount of screaming and screeching during the day and using that. So now he's saying Ba-Man, 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 Ba-Man. He's saying it very clearly. And then, you know, he was able to do some signs. So he would do the sign for book so that she knew he wanted Spider-Man book. And he would do the sign for shoes so she knew he wanted his Spider-Man shoes. So anyways, he was using signs paired with this verbal approximation. And so after um, a few weeks, I said to mom, we need to get that third syllable in there so it sounds more like Spider-Man. So we did, we went from ba man to ba da man ba da man it starts out sounding a little choppy, a little segmented, but with repetitive speech practice, um, it becomes very nicely co-articulated. The R sound came in all on its own because he doesn't have an articulation disorder. He had a praxy of speech. Okay. So Bottoman became Bottoman, 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 Bottoman. And now he's adding other words. Bottoman, Dootnat for fi- Spider-Man's fruit snacks. Uh, Bottoman, Doos for Spider-Man's shoes. Bottoman, Boo for Spider-Man book. So now we're hearing some phonological patterns, final consonant deletion, things like that, which are typical in new talkers. Uh, So eventually then we were able to get the S on the front. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Because this is a high frequency word that naturally occurs hundreds of times a day in his conversation, it doesn't take long for that to generalize, for him to be able to say it in all contexts. So within uh, a couple months, we went from screaming for Spider-Man to actually saying Spider-Man. So that's functional communication, functional communication. And that's the power of verbal shaping. And so I really don't know how to teach young children with a praxis of speech to talk without using verbal shaping, because that's how typically developing children learn to talk. Right. When when our two neurotypical daughters learn to talk, they didn't say words using the adult version. Right. They they had approximations. And over time, they morphed into the adult version. Is it weird that when you say verbal shaping, I automatically go to like comic books where they have the little speaking bubbles? You know, uh-huh. like it, it's in a shape. Oh, and it's in a shape. Yeah, that's not what SLPs okay. mean by verbal shaping. Right. But yeah, but thanks that's for a, that. That's, that's, the that's your, your mental image. image I got from You know, it. that's really interesting because I think as SLPs, we assume that lay people get our jargon. And verbal shaping is very much jargon. I mean, so mm-hmm. the fact that I'm talking to my husband here and in his brain, verbal shaping, he goes to the shape of words in a comic book, in a speech bubble, that just... I think that's so powerful, you guys, because we need to make sure that we're not using our lingo, that we're actually explaining what in the world we mean, because to SLPs, verbal shaping sounds like just everyday language. It is not everyday language. So that's really powerful. Thank you for 
sharing your wow. your layperson side of things because again I yeah I'd never really thought about how mm. parents interpreted that so yeah. yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So those are the seven strategies to help children uh, become communication risk takers. And so I want to thank you guys for listening to another episode of SLP Talk Show. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow, like, or subscribe to the show. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your colleagues. Anyone else they should tell, Jim? No, that sounds like everybody. Their preschool teachers, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who, their neighbors. No, your neighbors may not care. Anyways, um, <laughs> we'd also appreciate it if you'd leave us a review. We'd love a five-star review. If you've got it in you, if you're enjoying the show, we really appreciate it. So as you head back to the real world, remember, joy is a choice that you make every day when you wake up. Throw kindness around like confetti. And please get your boobies checked every single year. It could just save your life. It certainly saved mine. Until we meet again, cheers.